You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun. From car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. In today's episode, I'm going to discuss some of the logistics for planning out-of-state hunts. Let's face it, more and more people are trying their hand at doing these types of hunts. The popularity has certainly increased due to media and content from people doing them, and I'm sure the pandemic in some ways is likely boosting those numbers as well. I'd venture to guess that most of the hesitation to doing an out-of-state hunt is either due to the confidence level that you'd actually be able to get what you want out of that type of hunt, but I'd also guess that a large part of it is surely due to the logistics and simply not knowing what you don't know. Over the past several years, I've now hunted in Missouri, Wisconsin, North Dakota, Iowa, Colorado, and Georgia, outside of my home state of Minnesota, and this year I'll be adding Nebraska and Pennsylvania to the list of states I will have been to. Some of those trips have been group trips, others solo. Some early season, some rut, and some late season. Most are driving, but a couple have been flying, so hopefully I'll be able to shed some light on the things to be aware of if you're looking to plan your first out-of-state hunt this fall. So we'll do a quick note about Spartan Forge and then dive right in. Spartan Forge is a service which gives you deer movement prediction based on machine learning. What does that mean and how does it work? Well, in a nutshell, years worth of data, primarily from collared deer studies across the country, is fed into what's called a neural network. Essentially, it's computers that analyze the data and look for patterns. Those patterns might be increased or decreased movement based on rain, humidity, wind speed, temperatures, or a variety of other factors. Those factors might impact deer differently based on what region of the country it's taken from, and the computers don't really care why deer move more or less on certain conditions, they just recognize what happens and then apply those patterns to future outcomes for general deer movement. Spartan Forge is currently web-based, but an application is currently in the works, will be beta tested shortly, and likely will be released close to the hunting season. Use the code DIY for a discount on a Spartan Forge membership. Now, of course, the first thing you're going to want to do is select your state. Select what weapon you want to hunt with, what season you want to hunt for, you know, what specific tag. If you have something in mind that's maybe like a bucket list type of a hunt, then certainly you got a good place to go. But if you're just trying to look for a good out-of-state opportunity to try something new, uh, then your options really are pretty wide open. So in that case, usually it's easiest to pick a state that's not too far away, maybe one state over, or maybe a couple states over. If you have friends that are in a certain location, that can be a good thing to look into also. Just somebody to kind of show you the ropes or give you some advice about some of the areas that you might be hunting. If you don't have that to kind of fall back on, then usually what I do is just research the areas as heavily as I can. Like let's say, you know, for Nebraska, uh, as an example, 
I've been discussing and talking with as many people that I can find who have hunted that state, especially the ones who have hunted it in the early season uh, on public land, which is the, the same type of a hunt that I'd be doing, and then picking their brains as much as possible, also contacting the uh, local land managers for the various public lands that we'd potentially be hunting, talking to any kind of game board, just trying to collect any sort of information there that I can. But what I like doing also is just doing general research on the area that you're going to be doing to see what pops up, right? Like if I select a, a certain piece of public land and I start Google searching it and there's like 18 different threads that pop up with discussions about it, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what it does mean is that I have to definitely take that into account. That's probably going to be a higher pressure area versus if I just am having trouble finding anything about that piece of land at all, it probably means it's less hunted. And expand your searches on that because sometimes if you're just looking for deer specific information, you might totally miss out that the place is absolutely, you know, crazy popular for waterfowl hunting during the time frame you'd be there, for example. There are some areas with enough deer and enough vastness to their size that a lot of pressure really isn't going to impact your hunt quality too much. But on the flip side, if you got smaller land and it's more condensed and it's just like one pocket of the state and everybody knows about it, it might be severely overhunted. And that's just something you're going to have to look at the context of everything and decide if that's going to be a major influence or not. Another thing to take into consideration, though, is what other seasons might be going on when I plan to do this hunt. For example, when I went out to Colorado, basically every time we've gone out to Colorado to hunt mule deer or elk, there's been other seasons for other species going on at the same time that might be muzzleloader seasons, that might be rifle seasons. And if you're just going out there for, say, like an archery elk hunt, then you might not realize that same time frame you're, you're at. you got, you know, high country rifle hunting mule deer hunters. You have muzzleloader hunters for bears, muzzleloader hunters for elk during that same time frame. Because that, you know, whenever we go out there, it always coincides with what would normally be like the kind of peak bugling, peak rut activity. And you got all these various seasons going on at the same time. So it's definitely something you need to be aware of uh, because you might just go in there and think, oh, it's just going to be a bunch of other archery elk hunters. And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, similarly, when I had gone out to South Dakota for a plant hunt last year, I did my research, but I didn't do it as well as I, I guess I should have uh, because the county that we had picked out to go and hunt turned out to have a rifle season that was earlier than the rest of the entire state and coincided with the rut. And so when we showed up there and uh, we're ready to, to do our hunt, we noticed a whole bunch of other vehicles driving around and a lot of blaze orange and weren't quite exactly sure why. Thought maybe it was just a really popular area for bird hunting. Um, it seemed to be the most logical explanation until we started to see people carrying around rifles. Uh, stopped and talked to somebody and they're like, yeah, it's a you know, it's an ongoing deer hunting season. And we went back and checked the regulations again, and there was nothing in the original season dates that would suggest that. But if you dive into the, you know, notes and the details, then it did become clear that, you know, we just should have done our research a little bit better. So in that particular scenario, you know, if you run into that where you just, you screw up and you're not in an ideal hunting scenario, you can still make, you know, lemonade out of lemons, or at least do your best to try and accomplish that, it's just not going to be as easy and you're going to have to be able to shift your plans on the fly. What we did in that scenario is just assessed our situation and said it's going to be, you know, better in another area where it's just archery only. So we ended up driving out of that county and actually drove all the way back to Wisconsin uh, and had a pretty good hunt when we got back there. Generally speaking, 
the rut time frames are going to be the time frames when most other people are going to be doing travel hunts. So you're most likely to run into other hunters when you're going out of state. That said, early season is starting to become more and more popular, especially in states that have extremely early openers. So states like North Dakota, states like Kentucky, states like Nebraska are starting to see more and more hunters. I guess I can't speak too much to Kentucky. It's probably been that way for a while, but I definitely noticed an uptick in hunting pressure in North Dakota. Each of the you know multiple times that we've gone out there now, there's more and more people that are you know showing up in the campground. So generally late season is the least popular time and you can probably have the run of the place to yourself. Even in my local States, it's like, you're probably going to be one of the few or only people out there hunting late season as you get closer and closer to the end. The only difference might be if you have like a late muzzleloader hunt or something like that, that's probably going to get more pressure than if it was just archery throughout the end of the season, you probably also want to just confirm, you know, how much time is there between whatever the last firearm season there was in that state versus the time frame you're going to be going out there. Certainly the longer that gap is, the more likely you're going to be able to get on deer that are starting to, you know, come out of that over pressured time frame and start to act more normal. But the late season hunts often have more logistical things you have to take into consideration than some of the earlier season hunts do. Certainly because of the cold weather, potential for snow, potential for icy roads, even just trying to keep your, like if you're going to film, keeping your camera batteries warm is something that's a little bit more challenging and keeping the electronics rolling. But the advantage of going later in the year is that your daylight is shorter. So if you're going to be staying at like a motel or something, then having that shorter daylight period of time allows you to fit all of your hunting into a short space and then still be able to go back and have longer amount of time to recharge all of your extra batteries, uh, draw out your clothes if they're wet or, you know, full of snow, that type of thing. So Logistics are definitely going to be the bigger part of the equation once you've done that initial research and have an idea of what kind of hunt you want to go on, what state you want to go on, what tag that is, etc. So then let's dive into the logistical side of things. The first thing you're going to need to decide is how you're going to get there. You're going to drive, are you going to fly, are you going to carpool or drive solo? In my opinion, driving logistically is much easier. Uh, driving in a group is probably the easiest. And, you know, driving solo is a little bit harder. Flying comes with its own set of challenges. So I'll talk about driving uh, first. But the nice thing about driving, especially if you're solo, is you got the opportunity to bring pretty much anything and everything that you could possibly want to bring. Uh, plenty of sleeping, camping gear, you know, coolers, all of your weapons. Like it just, there's not a limitation on space when it comes to driving by yourself or maybe even one other guy. Now, when you start to fit three or four guys into the same vehicle, then it starts to become a little bit more challenging, especially if you're going on a bigger game type hunt like elk, where if you're driving 15 hours and you got four dudes packed into a pickup truck and then you got four giant, you know, week long packs, cause you can be backpacking. You got four, you know, sets of weapons. You've got, you know, maybe four duffel bags for just kind of general stuff that you're not going to be packing in. And then you got cooler space. It very quickly, uh, piles up and you might have a, a truck topper that's just, you know, full to the, the brim with gear uh, or even having to pack an additional trailer. So that can add some logistical challenges. I've always been able to, in the groups I've gone with in the past, been able to just fit everything in the truck as tight as it might be. And then I don't have to worry about dragging anything else behind the truck, which again, I think it's just a little bit easier not having to bring any additional things. But one thing that is pretty popular, especially up here in the northern part of the country is, you know, a little toe behind uh, shells. A lot of times 
guys will have them up here for ice fishing anyway. They'll have their little fish houses and depending on what model you have, you know, they got electrical hookups, you got stoves inside of them. They, they got propane heaters. They have, in some cases, air conditioning. But again, that's kind of like a special feature to have air conditioning considering most of them are being used for cold weather use. Um, but, I mean, you don't have to have something that fancy because certainly just a, a camper shell, which might be more popular, say, like in warmer climates where ice fishing really isn't a thing, is probably like the equivalent of what you might have if you don't live up north. But then you're still going to want to be able to figure out where you're going to be able to place that and where you're going to be able to park it while you're on your trip. Certainly, if you are dragging a camper or some type of other shell, then a campground makes the most sense. A campground that has electrical hookups, uh, that has all of your kind of little necessities for uh, shower houses and bathrooms and things like that. Many of them also have Wi-Fi too, so that could be a nice feature. But again, being in close proximity to a campground might mean you have more hunting pressure, but there might be enough land around there that it really doesn't matter. And again, if you are going to be staying in a campground, they're generally going to be able to pack as much stuff as you're going to want to need uh, because you're just going to have that space to be able to lay everything out, start plugging stuff in, and just have that nice little base camp location to be able to drive back and forth from and only take the bare essentials and bare necessities on that actual hunt for whatever afternoon or morning you're going to be going on. Whereas if you're taking a more minimalist style approach and you're just driving out there with your vehicle and you're not going to be staying at a campground, you know, there are a few opportunities out there, depending on the type of land you're going to be hunting. There are oftentimes regulations that say there's no camping in the parking lots, which means you can't just sleep in the truck, uh, but some places you might be able to. So that's something you're going to want to do your research ahead of time and be able to check that out because, you know, there's been times in the past where I basically, especially on like a two or three day hunt, maybe it's like a turkey hunt or something like that, where it's, you know, three, four hours from my house. I would just drive out there late at night, roost some birds, and then, you know, it's 10 p.m., and I just crash in the, the driver's seat of the truck and then wake up at 3 a.m. the next morning to go out and hunt. So it's definitely an option for a more minimalist mobile style of, of approach where you're not really tied down to one particular campground, which could be nice if you have a large, vast area to be able to cover, and you just want to be able to do a little bit of driving around at the beginning, and you might find a place that's, you know, 30 miles from your original spot, but it seems better, and you want to start targeting that. Other areas where you might just be able to crash in the truck could be, you know, certain rest stops or gas stations, especially the ones that already have uh, places for uh, trucking to go through and stop and, and basically do the overnights there. So those would definitely be other places where you can look at to kind of have and establish a little bit of a mobile base camp, so to speak. Now, another option, if you do want a little bit more comfort on your trip would be to go ahead and just get like a motel room or a hotel room. Obviously, some of the same advantages come with that to having a full-blown, you know, camping setup in a campground would be you got oftentimes Wi-Fi, showers, electricity, you're able to recharge your stuff. Um, a lot of them will have access to washing machines and dryers. So there's a lot of advantages to being able to, to do a motel setup, provided, of course, that number one, you have one that's close to the area that you're going to be staying in, and number two, you're fine with paying whatever you know fees that are associated with that, which are almost always going to be a little bit more expensive than if you were to just get a campground or uh, just sleep in the truck. But there are more and more times nowadays where I look at that as a potential advantageous option as opposed to camping, even though I have no problem camping. I, in fact, enjoy camping. For a whitetail out-of-state hunt, 
where you're really focused on trying to maximize your efficiency and maximize your amount of time that you're able to, to be effective. The nice thing about a motel setup is that you can drive into that area, go and check in your motel, drop off some stuff and you're right out into the woods. There's, you know, no setup time when, when it comes to putting up your tent, uh, putting up your little portable cook station, your, you know, awning or whatever you're going to be using to, to have some shelter uh, from the rain. And on the tail end of the trip, let's say it did rain and all your stuff is wet, you know, while you can throw that stuff in the back of your truck to be able to drive back home, once you get back home, you're going to have to take all that stuff back out and set it up in the sun to get it to dry off. So there's just some added time and inconvenience that comes with that versus, of course, if you're staying in a motel, you can just, you know, check out and you're right on the road, ready to come back home. One system that does have some amount of popularity is those little pop-up camper shells that you can put on the back of your truck over the bed. And one thing I would just caution you to think about before you just dive in and get a setup like that would be how much driving you're going to be doing back and forth from where you're sleeping to where you're hunting during your trip. Because with a system like that, every time you want to get back in the truck and drive somewhere, you're going to want to pop that shell back down or that pop-up back down. And so if you're going to be sleeping in the bed of the truck, what I think logistically makes more sense in many scenarios would be to get, you know, one of those taller toppers to be able to put onto the back of your truck and then convert that into a, a sleeping quarters because then you can just basically crawl out the back, close everything back up, get in the front and start driving again. Whenever we've gone out West, the backcountry sleeping setup has been what we've done for elk and mule deer. And the thing about a lot of places out West is that you can pretty much camp dispersed wherever you want to camp. And that makes that type of hunting a little bit more accessible, a little bit more feasible because for whitetail hunting, a lot of States, you know, like I talked about earlier, you might not be able to camp. You might not be able to camp at the parking lot. You might not be able to camp dispersed just out in the woods. Even if it's a relatively large chunk of land, you might have a hundred thousand acres, but you can't camp on it. It just depends on what the specific uh, regulations are for that particular piece of land that you're going to be going on. Sometimes you have the option to do dispersed camping in certain areas, like maybe a hundred feet from uh, roads X, Y, and Z. So definitely do your research there. But if you do have an area where you're allowed to disperse camp and you're thinking, Hey, it'd be really cool to have, you know, a teepee or a tarp and go out there and just camp and then just hunt from that camp. I would say that it makes sense in two scenarios. The first scenario where it makes sense to do is if it you know, reasonably gives you a better chance to get into more remote areas that aren't going to be hunted as much. And you would have a much tougher time just hiking in that far to be able to hunt from the road every day. And a lot of places out West, especially for like elk and mule deer, that style of hunting has become so popularized that oftentimes going in deep is not necessarily getting into the areas that are less pressured as much as it used to, you know, 20 years ago or whatnot. But if you're going on a whitetail trip, that might be a different story. And the other time that I would say it makes sense to do a backcountry style of trip is if it just is part of the adventure you're looking for. There's definitely an aspect about hunting out of a tent that is in many ways enjoyable. It becomes part of the experience, part of the memories. Um, and so if that's something you're looking for, then absolutely that can be a pretty viable option. I do think it is more logistically challenging than a lot of the other things I've talked about earlier. So you're going to have to change what kind of food you're probably going to be eating. You got to bring in water filters. If you got camera gear, that's a lot more batteries you're going to want to pack in or a solar panel. But I think the solar panels tend to be not as convenient. Once again, it's just packing in extra batteries. So there's more things you got to think about. There's more, you know, 
potentially expensive gear if you want to go super lightweight on that side of things than if you were just to hunt out of your truck. So those are all kind of things you're going to want to weigh out. So we've discussed driving. Now let's discuss flying a little bit. And I'll be honest, most of the trips that I've gone on out of state have been driving and only a few of them have been flying. But every time that I have flown to do a hunting trip, it has been a pretty easy experience more so than you might think. Sometimes it's more expensive to fly. Actually, I'd say a lot of times it's more expensive to fly than it would be to drive. The advantage is you're saving time in traveling from getting from one place to the other. And if you're going across country, it starts to make more and more sense. For instance, if like when I'm looking to go do my Pennsylvania hunt this fall, for me to drive out there, it's going to be over 15 hours. I got to drive through Chicago. There's, I think like an absurd amount of tolls between uh, here and there. And so when I actually looked up the flights, it was not that much more expensive to actually fly there. It's about the same price when you factor it in tolls and the price of gas. And certainly if you were a guy who was living in Pennsylvania and wanted to do a hunt in like Idaho or Washington or something, then flying just makes a lot more sense than driving out that whole entire way. Because if you got a week off, half your time is just driving. What I've found is that the two biggest mental blocks for trying to fly someplace is number one, how do I get my weapon there? Are they going to lose my weapon? Anything related to traveling with a weapon? And the other part is meat. How am I going to be able to get the meat back? Is there risk of the meat spoiling? And if you can overcome those two potential issues, then a lot of people become a little bit less concerned with the actual aspect of flying. So what I definitely recommend is direct flights if you have the ability to do so, uh, because that's just just less opportunity where something could go wrong, less opportunity where something can get lost. The chances that you lose luggage on a direct flight is pretty low. So TSA has regulations and recommendations on how you should be able to transport and pack your weapons, whether it's a firearm, whether it's archery equipment. Uh, they are a little bit different in terms of what they require. When I've flown with a gun, I have used a Pelican gun case that has TSA compliant you know, locks built into it. And when I flew down to Georgia, for example, with that weapon, it was pretty straightforward. When I got down there, I opened up the case and there was a little, you know, ticket inside that just basically said it had been inspected, uh, but nothing really was tampered or messed with in any case. And when I flown down with archery equipment, it's, I've used a Lakewood bow case. That's just like a giant rectangle and it's separated out. So you can put your bow on one side, quiver on the other side. You can actually fit some other stuff in there. When I flew down to Georgia, I had the bow. I had a, a climbing stick, I had my saddle, and I just threw like a bunch of random little accessories in there and just stuffed that bow case full. Obviously, I made sure that the string was ultra padded and ultra protected for anything that had sharp edges. But that allowed me to maximize the amount of space that I had and be able to minimize the amount of extra bags that I would have had to take on that trip. Now, getting meat back is another big concern, but it's pretty easy to overcome in my experience. The biggest thing is... If you have the ability to freeze the meat solid before you attempt to fly back with it, that's going to be a pretty big advantage. When we flew back from Alaska, we didn't have meat in terms of like venison or moose or anything like that. We didn't hunt there, but we had fish and had close to 100 pounds of halibut and salmon that we had to fly back. And what they effectively did at the place we were staying at was they did all of the, the vacuum sealing and they froze the meat. They put the meat into styrofoam coolers. Those styrofoam coolers fit nice and tight into these little cardboard boxes that they had. So they taped those up. So you basically had, in our case, two cardboard boxes that were a little bit less than 50 pounds. 
that we were able to check as additional luggage and flying back from Anchorage to Minneapolis. By the time we got back, I think that meet, if anything, was just like starting to uh, soften, but it was still primarily frozen and we were able to transport it right back into the freezer and it worked out pretty well, which had to pay the extra fees to get that meat back. And when I've done the similar trip back from Georgia uh, with some pork, the difference was instead of, you know, going to some place where they froze my meat, I went to a convenience store and got a styrofoam cooler, bought some dry ice and just froze that meat solid. And then I packed it in my luggage and in this case, I didn't even have a cooler. I don't think I just, it was a short flight from Atlanta back to Minneapolis. And the meat was still, uh, cool. I would say by the time I got it back, but flying back with a cooler would be preferable. I have a, a little pop-up like portable soft-sided cooler that would work well in most scenarios for that, especially if you're able to, you know, pack that thing into another bag or, or sometimes somehow minimize or able to utilize that space. So you're not just flying an extra, you know, $50 worth of empty baggage down on the way. I know something that, uh, Brian call mentioned on his recent podcast, which again, I recommend you check that out because he did a whole podcast on flying with weapons and flying with meat. I guess it's more focused on the meat side of things, but it sounds like they really like the Yeti pangas, which is effectively like a soft sided duffel bag that would allow you to freeze the meat, put that in the, the duffel bags and then fly that back home. So there's a lot of options there, but again, direct flights and also ensuring that you have the ability to, to preferably freeze that meat solid are going to go a long ways to help and get that meat back. Dry ice is, I feel like one of the easiest ways to fully freeze your meat. If you don't have access to like a big freezer locker or someplace that you can take that meat to, um, certainly that would be a good option too. If you have an opportunity uh, to get to a place that has a freezer and is willing or able to, you know, even with a fee freeze that meat for you. But if you have a cooler and just drop 10 or 15 pounds of dry ice in that cooler, along with your meat, separated by like a towel or something to prevent direct contact and prevent that freezer burn, then you're oftentimes going to find that overnight that meat will just freeze rock solid, depending again on how much meat you have. When I went to Colorado a few years ago and shot a mule deer, uh, basically the second morning of what was like a six or seven day hunt, I needed to be able to keep that meat frozen solid for effectively the rest of that week because we saw other guys. It wasn't like I could just drive right home. So I went into town, got again, like 15 pounds of dry ice, put that across the bottom of the cooler, uh, put that towel over top, put the meat on, closed the cooler. Uh, and that just froze that meat absolutely rock solid to the point where even with like a cheap Walmart, you know, Coleman brand or equivalent type of a cooler, by the time I got home a week later, that meat was still mostly frozen. I had to wait for it to thaw out actually, before I could start to break it down a little bit further. So dry ice is your friend if you have access to it, which again, oftentimes you can find that in um, supermarkets. You might be able to find it in certain gas stations, but as you're looking into the potential areas you're going to want to hunt, knowing where the gas stations are, knowing where the supermarkets are is going to be pretty important because if you get more remote in some of those areas out in the plain states, you can't just assume that you got a Walmart every 15 miles. So you definitely need to do your research on the front end and plan uh, how you're going to be able to get your meat frozen how you're going to be able to keep your meat cool, how you're going to be able to get that meat back. And that goes not just for meat care, but that generalization also kind of applies to what kind of food you're going to be able to get access to, where you're going to be able to fill up and get gas. The first time I went to North Dakota, for instance, you know, you're just, you're driving along highways most of the way there and you're just accustomed and used to there being a gas station 
every 10 miles or so along the freeway. But once you get into that grid network of roads uh, out in the plain states, you, you can't just assume that there's going to be a gas station every so often. Uh, I remember at one point I was getting close to empty. I looked at the, the GPS, you know, poor cell service. I finally got uh, Google Maps to be able to pull up the nearest gas stations. The nearest one was like 40 miles away uh, and not even in the direction I was going to be going to. So routing out where you're going to have gas stations, again, that's something you definitely, if you're going to be driving, that's something you want to do. Same thing goes with food. And if you want to pack your own food in a cooler, that works pretty well. Uh, of course, it just means you have more work on the front end, but you're probably going to save money. You're going to be able to eat whatever you want. You might have to do some cooking. Maybe you're going to eat cold food. Those are things you can decide just based on your personal preference. We've done a little bit of both. There's been times that we've packed our own food and cooked it and ate while we're out there. There's also been times where there's a local you know, convenience store or a local little supermarket or something like that. And we'll just go in and get you know, food, Powerades, coffee in the morning, and there's certainly a big convenience aspect to that, but it probably is going to be more expensive. So that's something to keep in mind too. If I have the time, I like to you know prep and plan for those meals. But another option that you would have, if you, especially if you're going on a backcountry type of a trip, but this could apply to any kind of trip you would go on, is you have the option for you know camping stoves and some of those freeze-dried meals. Certainly if you're camping out in the wilderness, having lightweight food that you can rehydrate and cook on the fly is pretty important. There's nothing to be kept cold. There's no dishes. So no, you know, additional cooking stuff that you need to bring other than basically a long spoon and something to be able to uh, heat up your water in some type of a titanium or stainless steel pot. And of course that little backpacking stove with the fuel canisters. That's pretty much what we've used when we've gone to Colorado. Haven't had any issues with that type of a system. Uh, just generally the, Freeze-dried meals can be somewhat expensive, depending on what you're going with in terms of a brand. It could be, you know, $7 for a pouch. It could be $13 for a pouch. And three pouches a day, sometimes those meals might only have, you know, six, 700 calories in them. Sometimes they might have eight or 900. You're going to want to plan on how many calories you're going to want to eat and make sure you have coverage for that. And certainly, I think in various scenarios, having a cold meal for at least one or two meals of the day just adds some additional ease to your logistics on the day instead of having to always have, you know, amount of fresh water to be able to cook that, uh, food. And then the other aspect of it is if you're going to be going on a cold weather hunt, then you want to have water that's not frozen, of course, to be able to cook that. So, um, more and more reasons why if it's a cold hunt and it's a whitetail hunt, I would start to lean more towards, uh, say like a, a cheap motel just to be able to, avoid some of those additional challenges that would come with having to keep things going and keep things rolling in a, a cold weather environment. In terms of packing gear, it definitely is not a bad thing in my opinion to have some kind of a portable bow press, the ability to work on your equipment and be able to fix things on the fly if you need to. That goes, I guess, for your vehicle as well. Anything that could break down on that trip, if you're going to be going to an area, especially that doesn't have a lot of big cities or towns around, then having a little bit of know-how and the tools to be able to fix things is going to go a long way. <clears throat> Fortunately, we haven't had too many issues on a lot of the trips that we've been on, but we've been prepared just in case something does happen that we'd be able to fix uh, that thing on the fly as opposed to just being kind of stranded. As far as clothing is concerned, I mean, that really just comes down to what the hunt's going to be like, what the time of year is going to be like. So I'm not going to go into too much detail there because that's something you're going to just have to figure out based on whatever scenario you're going to be going into. But 
especially if you're going to be driving, pack more than you think you would need. A lot of times when I go on an out-of-state trip, I'll have, you know, three, four layers that I just end up never uh, bringing out of the, the duffel bag just because they were just in case layers. And if you're driving somewhere and you're not backpacking in someplace, it doesn't really uh, matter unless you are got three, four guys stuffed in a truck and you're really trying to save on space. Now, if you are newer to the out-of-state trips, one thing you'll need to keep in mind also is that many states now have regulations in terms of how you're able to transport your meat back home. And that doesn't just apply to the meat, but it also applies to, say, the antlers. And CWD laws are probably the most prevalent, at least in the states that I've hunted, where if you're going across state lines, you might have to already have your meat quartered. You might not be able to bring the, um, the skull, the spinal column. You have to get rid of those. A lot of states will have check-in stations where you can drop those things off and they'll do CWD testing. Most of the states I would say that I have direct access to here locally have those types of requirements. Wisconsin, for example, they have little kiosks sort of peppered around the state that you can shoot your animal, uh, do the quartering, take that to a kiosk, and they have a little bit of paperwork you'd fill out, and you're able to drop that head in the spinal column into you know, a bag and drop it off to do the testing, and then you're able to just take that clean skull cap with the antlers, you know, assuming you shot a buck, and take that deboned meat. You can still have a lot of times leg bones and things like that. You can have solid quarters. So they just the spine is usually the thing that you can't keep um, along with the, the head and the brain tissue. So make sure you are up to speed on CWD laws. If it's a state where you are not going to have those kiosks where you can drop the, the bones off, you're going to need to figure out, are you legally able to say quarter deer in the field? And therefore you're leaving the, the spine out there. Um, that can make things easier, of course, as well. For detaching the antlers from the skull cap, I have a, a Sawzall that's battery powered in the back of my truck that works decently well. Uh, for being able to separate the uh, that skull cap and be able to get rid of the rest and just take the antlers home. I mean, a hacksaw will be able to do that job as well. It's just going to be a, a little bit harder, a little bit longer. But point is you want to make sure that you're pre-planning for being able to comply to whatever CWD regulations are in place uh, and not just be in a situation where you shoot a buck out of state and it's like, oh, crap, what do I do next? I don't have any of these you know tools to be able to you know, separate the skull cap, or I don't have a, a place where I know I can legally drop off the spine, things like that. You want to make sure that all that stuff is vetted out ahead of time. All right. And so I feel like we did a decent job here, just kind of high level going over some of the big logistical considerations to keep in mind when doing an out-of-state trip. I didn't go into too much detail on, you know, selecting areas to hunt or what states are better than others, things like that. Uh, Cause it's going to be a lot of personal preference that comes into that and what kind of experience and what type of trip you're looking for. But if you have additional questions, that are more specific in nature, uh, or, you know, even questions on some of the specific gear that I've used on some of these out of state trips that I've kind of glossed over in this episode, then certainly shoot me a message on uh, Instagram or on Facebook. And uh, I'll go ahead and do my best to answer whatever questions you guys might have. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.